This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 28th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Medzoller is coming to you here from Phoenix as I work through this weekend, and we look at a few developments that have taken place over the past week. Probably the largest one that took place was that the IRS released proposed regulations on required minimum distributions following the SECURE Act. So we'll take a look at what changed, and we got a couple of surprises out of the guidance. So we'll talk a little bit about what's there and what's happening. We haven't gotten rid of the whole K2, K3 situation yet. The AICPA and the State Societies of CPAs jointly signed a letter to the IRS requesting that the entire process be kicked back one year. We'll see if we get any response to that and the practical issue of by the time we get a response, will it matter if you're going to be filing your returns timely? We'll have to see about that, but the issue is still out there as to where we're going on this. And finally, we'll look at a case of a taxpayer who tried to argue that because they made an innocent data entry error on their tax software, that they should be waive or should be able to qualify for a reasonable cause excuse out of the substantial understatement penalty. The only problem was, while no question the date entry error was almost certainly inadvertent, uh, it did cause their home mortgage interest to be off by a factor of 100. And it wasn't like it reduced it by 100 times. It's, yeah, it went off the other direction, factor of 100. So we'll discuss how that worked, and more importantly, why the taxpayer was found to be liable and why that doesn't qualify as reasonable cause. A reasoning that's important not just for taxpayers who are, quote, doing their own return, unquote, uh, trying to prove that every person is a tax person, to quote a certain tax, work comp- tax software company. I think we did prove these two probably weren't tax people. But also it affects, for you as a paid preparer, Uh, issues that you run into because you need to understand what's considered reasonable cause and also what the client's responsibilities are from the IRS's viewpoint, which we have to remember may not be what the viewpoint is of a state or local court, and especially a jury, if the taxpayer attempts to recover the penalties from the preparer. In this case, well, the preparer was them, so eh, we'll see how that goes and if, if they try to go for anybody else to pay for it. But let's go ahead and let's talk about first our development of the proposed SECURE Act required minimum distribution regulations were issued. And this is Reg Project 105-954-20. It made the Federal Register in Volume 87, Number 37 issue, uh, issued on February 24th, 2022. Now, these proposed regulations are interesting because they have an effective date comment that make you think they were planning to get them out last year because it says that you had to follow, you know, you could follow these rules for 2021 calendar year distributions. They would be considered a safe harbor. Well, that's great, except we're sitting in February of 2022. Kind of hard to have follow them for a 21 distribution at this point. Um, So they are had to have a proposed effective date that would have them take effect for this year. That's also important to note. Whether that actually happens is open because they are, as they are stated, proposed regulations. And certainly there are pieces in here that I think have a reasonable chance of changing before we get final regulations. So just be aware, though, we have them. This looked primarily at the changes made by the SECURE Act. 
and the SECURE Act made a lot of changes in the area of required minimum distributions. You may recall it killed the stretch IRA. You may recall that it pushed your required beginning date back to age 72 from age 70 and a half. It did a number of other things, but that's not what they're working with here. They're working with these required minimum distribution issues and inherited IRAs. And it starts out a quick way, and we I took a lot of this, to be honest. I followed the summary because it's tax season. There's only so many hours in the day. Uh, and so I actually uh, owe a, a bit of gratitude, shall we say, to a Twitter thread that Jeff Levine posted this week that walked through a lot of the key areas. And we're going to kind of follow in outline form uh, the issues that he talked about or that he brought up in the order he brought them up and kind of look at what each thing means, because I think they are somewhat interesting. I do have the link to his Twitter thread that is in the materials you can download on the website. Uh, if you want to grab that on the Current Federal Tax Developments website, we have it there. Also, the Current Federal Tax Developments article on this issue also has a link to that Twitter thread. And Jeff does cover some topics in that thread that we're not going to cover today. I'm concentrating today mainly on the RMD issues, a couple of key ones that Jeff covers that I'm not spending a lot of time. And there's some interesting things uh, that get a bit in the weeds on things that can be done now with trust as beneficiaries. There's more flexibility added there. Um, you know, there are various other little things that get in there that have an impact. We'll talk about those later. Now, for the question of inherited IRAs, we had the whole stretch IRA issue and what happened. Well, the first thing to remember is that beneficiaries of an IRA account tend to be uh, gapped, or they previously were in two categories. You had what were called designated beneficiaries. Designated beneficiaries are generally individuals and trusts that were set up to be conduit trusts we could look through in order to find a person with an age that we could use for the designated beneficiary rules, because obviously, when we get to September 30 of the year following the year of the death of the participant or the IRA account holder, we are able to then set the required minimum distributions at that point for the inherited IRA by the individual who was the oldest individual at that date. And if you had certain things, that entities that simply don't have an age and don't have a life expectancy, like charities, decedents of state, and most trusts that aren't under these special, that weren't written to these special rules to be conduit trusts, you're going to have no real life expectancy. The rules for non-designated beneficiaries, that is for those charities, estates, and most trusts, those didn't really change under the SECURE Act. As we had before, if, you, if the IRA account holder or employee dies prior to reaching their required beginning date, which is now going to be the year they turn age, when they turn age 72. The distribution has to come out. All funds must leave the account within five years after the date of, you know, five years of the year following. Within, five, the, within the end of the fifth year of the year following the date of death of the individual. So you've got five years to get out. You don't have to take an amount out in any of the years, but you do have to have it all out by the end of year five. If the person already begun taking their required minimum distributions, then the basic rule was you had to take it out as least as rapidly as the decedent was taken out, which generally meant that you could use the life expectancy of the decedent. So whatever was remaining there, I realize it's weird to have life expectancy of a decedent 
the person has died. It seems like that would be zero. But no, we're talking about an actuarial concept of what their life expectancy would be, assuming they hadn't died, right? So yes, there, there were, you know, they, they may have been, let's say, age 87 when they died, but there are definitely 87-year-olds to see their 88th birthday and 89th, 90th, etc. So there are some years of life expectancy when you turn 87, and we would then look at that life expectancy period. This guy obviously was pulling the curve down because he went and died immediately at age 87. But, you know, that, that's how it works. So you'd get that there. Nothing really changed for this group. However, there were major changes for the category called designated beneficiaries. Designated beneficiaries are very roughly those with a life expectancy. And previously, really, they fell into two groups. and not, it was kind of two groups and kind of not two groups. Uh, if you were a surviving spouse, you picked up additional options, but you still could just be a designated beneficiary. Now, our designated beneficiaries really fall into two categories. They fall into cat one category, which is this new thing called an eligible designated beneficiary. And we'll talk about that. They're the ones that still get some sort of stretch IRA option, that they can do this based on their life expectancy. So we still have that option for this group, right? They, they still have a chance to go here and, you know, use the designated life expectancy rules and at least work some from there. So we have that in play. Then we have everybody else. Everybody else gets stuck with new rules. Now, there's a little bit of surprise here in the new rules. So let's talk about what's there. It's not, it's not surprising in one sense when you consider what the law says. It is surprising in that a lot of us had assumed that Congress's intent here was to get rid of uh, the whole problem of trying to compute a minimum distribution for most of these people and simply say, get it out in 10 years and we're happy regardless whether a person has died or not, or whether they, I should say, whether they died or not, where they died before reaching the required beginning date or they died after that date. So that was kind of an interesting uh, difference. We'll find that if the person dies, so let's say the employee or the IRA account holder dies prior to the required beginning date, which means now they died before they turned age 72. Then it does work the way we'd always assumed it worked ever since the CARIC was passed. You have, you have to get everything out of the account by the end of the 10th year following the year of the death of the participant. So if a participant were to die this year, then beginning in 2023, you know, that would start our 10-year count. So by 2032, you would need to have the entire balance out. There would be no requirements for any specific amount to be distributed prior to that year 10. You could take it all out in year one. You could take one-tenth out every year. You could take random numbers out every year. But at the end of the 10th year, we have to be to zero. That's the requirement. However, the regulations tell us separately, which is what's a little more interesting is, uh, if you start, if this person died after the required beginning date, so this person was age 73, they had begun taking minimum required distributions. Once they start doing that, then you have to, uh, you still have to take your distributions every year. So unlike the standard rule, which a lot of people thought would apply, 
where you'd be able to go for 10 years. So you'd go year one through nine, take nothing out. Year 10, take everything out, which could have been really the way to go for something like a Roth IRA where you didn't need the funds. And so for the Roth IRA, you would keep it growing tax-free for all those years. And then year 10, you would take it out. Now you've been told if it goes to a non-spouse beneficiary, that's a designated beneficiary, it's still going to have to all come out. So have to come out based on life expectancy for 10 years. And so that'd be depend on how old the person was that's a beneficiary. And then in year 10, it's going to have to, anything else left would come out. But there would be required minimums in the interim. So you would still be computing the life expectancy of the oldest beneficiary for the account in question. And that's how you still have, it still makes sense to try to sort accounts out before 10 year before the year is up. In this case, well, it makes sense to do that anyway, because otherwise the kids fight over how to invest the thing. And secondly, it does make each one their own age. So everybody's not stuck with the oldest child's age. So that also helps them. At least everybody except the oldest child. But that's still going to be important now because it is going to make a difference up through the 10th year. Now, so what it means is in year one through nine, you take it out based on the factor for the person's life expectancy, right? So if they have a remaining life expectancy of 20 years, you divide the balance of the account by 20, uh, the balance in there as of the beginning of the year following the year of death. And then in year, you know, in the next year, you would divide by 19, etc. But once you got to the 10th year, you would then just have to take everything. So year 10's required distribution will actually be a much larger number. Okay? It will be a much larger number for the required distribution in year 10. So that's part of what you need to remember there. So year 10 will get the big one. As I said, a lot of people had assumed that we could skip, skip the first nine years that we didn't have to worry about the first nine years. We could just take, you know, ignore those, take nothing out, and in year 10, take everything. Obviously, if you have taxable distributions, you're probably not going to want to wait till year 10 anyway. So for a traditional IRA or regular qualified plan, this probably isn't going to change much of anything. It's unlikely you would have really waited till year 10 to take everything out. Roth IRAs, that's where it makes a bit of difference because there, there was no reason to take things out if you weren't going to spend the money prior to year 10. Now, suddenly, we have to start taking those things out. Okay. Um, the eligible designated beneficiary rules, these got a little more interesting because they started giving us the definitions. Now, if you don't remember what eligible designated beneficiaries were, they were the mild minor child of the decedent, Individuals that are disabled, any individual who's chronically ill, that beneficiary, a beneficiary that is not more than 10 years younger than the, dece the, the deceased individual, right? So that, that would be issued there. And surviving spouses, that's the category. Now, we really didn't get much of a definition of a surviving spouse because you're either married or you're not is the way that Jeff phrased it. And so basically, yeah, we're not, we're not concerned about who a spouse is. We have that pretty much taken care of who a spouse is at the day of death. That's not an issue for us. But we did get a couple of clarifications. First thing is for minor children, remember it does have to be the minor child of the account holder, not just any minor child. And the person has to be under the age of majority as of the date of death of the decedent. And as uh, at the time they get to the age of majority, 
they cease being a designated beneficiary and they have to start taking, they have to get all the funds out within 10 years of that day. So a real question that we'd had from early on is, well, what's the age of majority? Well, the age of majority, it turns out, is age 21 is what the IRS has defined. They're not going to say it depends on each state. They're going to try to figure out which age was really the age of majority in the state. You know, what, what rights count? Is it right to vote? Is it all rights? You know, does that include the right to, you know, the drinking rules, all those things? I mean, what exact rules would apply? So the IRS has decided age 21, which probably is on the high end uh, compared to what a lot of states would do. So at age 21, apparently their theory is probably that makes it consistent nationwide. We don't worry about what happens is when, you know, when granddad, when dad died, the kid lived in Nebraska. But now as the kid starts getting older, you know, the kid has now moved to California. So which age of majority counts, the majority for the state they were in or the majority for the state that they're now living in. So that issue went out the window. We also got definitions of disabled, uh, general definition. They have a definition for those that are 18 or older, which is a definition of pretty much standard that you're unable to you know, have gainful activity and the condition is expected to be long-term and result in death. But they also, had a, they also had to find a separate one for those under 18, right? And that says they'll be disabled, right? If the individual had a medically determinable physical and mental impairment that results in a mark or severe functional limitations and that can be expected to result in death or be of long continued and indefinite duration. And finally, they set up a safe harbor. If the individual who's the beneficiary has been determined under the Social Security rules to have been disabled at the time that the individual died, you know, the plan participant died, then that will also count as disabled. Now, one thing that'll be here, and this will come up also for chronically ill individuals, is they do have some rather very detailed and specific documentation that must be submitted to the plan administrator in order to meet these requirements. Now, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes if that stays in, uh, if that's something that, you know, we're going to be stuck with. Because I'm sure the I'm sure especially IRA custodians would not be thrilled with those sets of rules. Although nothing in the regs seem to make the IRA custodian responsible for for saying, oh yeah, that person is disabled or that person isn't. It's much like the requirement we have for giving them a copy of a, of a trust document. At least as one of our two options for how we provide them with information for a conduit trust. And as I've said for years, nothing in there says they have to do a darn thing with it. You just got to show you delivered it. And they can do whatever they want. They, they can use it to, you know, they, they can put it up on the wall and throw darts at it. It doesn't really matter what they do with it. But, and I think the same thing here, but they still probably won't like it. So expect comments on that to come in. A chronically ill individual. This one has a more interesting, again, it's still the whole, you know, two activities of daily living issue. They can't perform that. They need, they need assistance. And it's going to last for long term, not merely 90 days. Uh, those requirements, but now we are required to have a basically a certification from a licensed healthcare practitioner that they meet these requirements. So you're going to have to get a doctor, similar individual, to certify that your chronically ill individual meets the test for chronically ill. 
So that's part of the deal. And again, that documentation, along with some other stuff, has to go up to the plan administrator or the IRA custodian. So that's also part of it. Now, just temporarily going back to that issue, why are we having to take money out for our standard designated beneficiaries, not eligible ones, but standard ones, you know, for the year one through nine? The reason for that is one that as soon as I heard that said they were doing it, I saying, I know where they're getting this. They did not change the part of the law that says if the required distributions have began, the person inheriting it has to take the money out of the account as least as rapidly as was being done currently. Well, in essence, the IRS had said, you know, previously they interpreted that to allow this sort of, you know, life expectancy distribution. Well, now they're saying you still got to meet both requirements. Everything has to be out within 10 years, but it never said you didn't have to worry about this at least as rapidly test. So that's why we have nine years under the old rules, suddenly switching in year 10 to the, okay, get everything out of the door now rule. So I don't know if that's what Congress meant, but I also don't know it's going to be easy to get it changed. So we'll have to see how all that goes, right? That'll be it. Um, we also had some information uh, to clarify one issue on surviving spouses. There, nor as your baby aware, a surviving spouse, if they inherit it, can decide to sit back and only receive the, um, basically, surviving spouse can sit back and they can start taking the minimum distribution when they would have turned 72, even if the decedent was already taking payments. They could stop it and wait if they're younger until age 72. Well, these rules, it wasn't clear to some people. What if you had inherited from your spouse the IRA account back in 2018? Now, are you waiting till 70 and a half, which was the age you thought you were waiting for when you first converted to yourself, or do you get to go all the way to 72? Let's assume that right now you're age 70 this year. So am I really approaching it, or do I still have time? a bit more time before it. And the IRS pretty much said, yeah, there, there's no special rule. If you did, if you had not already started your age 70 and a half distributions, we still go to 72. So that, you know, that that's probably good news. I'm not surprised by it. I didn't see anything in the law that would have suggested. You might end up with dual, but some people were concerned that they might look at it that way. That in fact, your required distributions had been set when Harry passed away back in 18. Uh, they're saying, nope, that, that, that's not how this works. There also was some concern. Can an eligible designated beneficiary who does not want to use life expectancy, but wants to go ahead and just, you know, wait for 10 years? You know, let's say if we've not yet had a, you know, the individual had not yet hit the required beginning date. Can we just wait for 10 years and then take everything out in year 10? And generally the rules say, yeah, that's true. That's fine. You don't have to use the eligible designated beneficiary rules, but it also made it clear that a plan does not have to allow you to use the life expectancy rules. That's like good news, bad news, right? You don't have to. Now, I would assume in most cases, you still could move the funds to an IRA account. You could roll them to an IRA account that would allow you to use the life expectancy distribution because the rules requiring the plans to allow you to roll funds into an IRA, even if you're a non-spouse beneficiary, those still are left in the law, so you could still get it out, but you might have to get it out. A plan would not have to let you 
wait 10 years, you know, or let's say take a lifetime distribution, a plan could simply do it for 10 years. More likely, they're just going to do it immediately. But that, you know, that, that's a whole other issue. But it was interesting that it's written that way. Theoretically, an IRA account could have the same rule in it. And then you just have to move it. I think most probably won't because they don't want to encourage you to take the money out if they don't have to. And as I said, there were a couple of other issues here. There are a lot of discussions and some neat new options made available for conduit trusts. Now, the conduit trust doesn't work as well as it used to uh, for the simple reason that obviously it's only going to allow you to get out there to 10 years. Now, for an eligible designated beneficiary, it could still work. But as should be clear, most eligible designated beneficiaries aren't really expected to have a huge long life expectancy to begin with. So the odds are it's not going to work well for the whole concept of a, you know, it's going to be, you know, these sort of long-term IRAs, you know, where we stretch out the IRA balances, stretches, stretch IRA is going to be a very limited stretch because that category of eligible designated beneficiaries generally don't have that long life expectancy except the minor kid. And we cut that person off at age of majority and then set them over to 10 years. But you still could set one up for somebody like that because, hey, you know, we might still be able to because we want to put it in the trust, we want to keep it in the trust, but still be able to get the stretch period. So we take the life expectancy distributions. Then when they reach age of majority, we then at that point began holding it, assuming that the person they inherited from, the parent they inherited from, was not in minimum distributions at that point. You know, not, not many kids who are under 18 have parents that are age 72 or higher. You know, so generally we won't see RMDs being, you know, people who had already hit required beginning date. So they'd be able to hold it then for the full 10 years afterwards and then take the distribution. So the trust could have all kinds of rules there. There are other special rules. There's some ability to ignore certain beneficiaries that could be very helpful. So, yeah, there's lots of things there that they made clear. There's also rules in there about what happens when a beneficiary dies and what the time frame is for having to get that out. You know, it's so the, the person who inherited the IRA, that beneficiary dies before all the funds have to come out. There are discussions there is about the rules that are triggered in that situation. So all of that's discussed more in Jeff's thread and you could read his thread. It's very good on that. As I will tell you in the article, it's tax season. I wanted to hit the highlights, and I just figured that when I got to the trust, it was like, well, this is all interesting, but this is a super deep dive, and I don't really have time to write up the super deep dive. And to be totally honest, since these are proposed regs, there's a very good chance a bunch of this is changing anyway, so I have to rewrite everything at the final regs in the event. But you might want to take a look at this, certainly after tax season, and when you're thinking about the 2022 required minimum distributions, you may want to consider this because there's a reasonable chance that the various parts in here, you know, any particular part in these rules has a reasonable chance of being put in place and very well before the end of this year. Now, I'm not sure if the service will continue with the 22 year being the year that this counts. But just like last year, when I when apparently they want to get this out in 21, I suspect the idea would be, well, for 22, you don't have to use these rules, but you got to still use a reasonable interpretation of Secure Act if you use these rules that that's your safe harbor that it's reasonable. So I suspect we will be computing under these rules if for no other reason than we know that this is at least quasi-blessed by the IRS and it'd be very difficult for them to argue that this is not reasonable. Uh, we'll just go from there. 
Okay, more K2, K3 stuff because, hey, we can't spend a week without talking about that these days. The AICPA and all of the state CPA societies, along with the District of Columbia Society, as I recall, all of them are in here, uh, signed a letter entitled Concerns Regarding Schedules K2 and K3 Reporting. This letter went from the, uh, from basically from the AICPA and the state societies issued on February 24th, and it was issued in this case um, to uh, the Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy, Department of Treasury, Lisa Batchelor, sorry, Lisa, I destroyed your name, and IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick uh, discussing these issues. And the letter begins with the standard kind of, well, okay, we're going to acknowledge something here to say you're not totally off, you're not total idiots. I guess that's the way you kind of phrase it. Acknowledging that, yes, there was a purpose in standardizing this reporting. And to be honest, you know, the, the foreign reporting on trust on K-1s was kind of weird. We've all seen those attachments. If you had any sort of client, if you had a client who's ever invested in a partnership that has a number of investments in foreign operations, you can discover that there is no consistency whatsoever in those attachments you got. You just had to dig through every one of them and try to figure out what they were talking about. So the idea was with K2, K3 reporting that we would make a lot of this more consistent for a whole lot of the issues that such partnerships would report. But as we all know, it got a little weird. There were a number of, as the AICPA letter points out, huge implementation issues. Obviously, we've had the back and forth on the instructions. But we also had the IRS admitting in December that they were not going to be ready to accept any of this through the standard e-file systems, the, you know, the MEF XML system. And while they had this kind of short-term patch of allowing you to attach PDFs, we also know that doesn't scale well. We know that there are real problems. We know that some major tax, at least one major tax software vendor says flat out that if you have more than 50 partners, we can't do this. We know the IRS has told us already that if you are going to wait for the other standard filing system, you're going to have to wait till March 20th for partnerships. Okay, that's five days after the due date. Now, sitting here today, I could probably live with that. I might like to be able to file it tomorrow. But I also know that, you know, okay, it won't be a disaster. But for S-corporations, that put us in uh, basically middle of June was the expected date. And if you had the 8865, the, the foreign partnership reporting form, uh, which got the form number wrong there, I'm sure, if you had that, that one wasn't going to be ready at all till next January. So there'd be no way absolutely you could ever file that, uh, you know, using anything but the PDF attachment method, which, of course, has certainly CCH is in communication with the IRS about what do you want us to do about this? We, we can't, you know, we're saying we can't attach more than 50. And so if somebody's got a partnership with more than 50. What do you expect them to do? You know, how do you expect this thing to get filed? Uh, since you can't accept it electronically. So they said, look, there are all these issues. So what the IRS is asking, or what the ASP is asking for, is for the IRS to delay filing these things. You know, just let's kick it back. Let's call it a day. Let's preferably delay accepting these until next year. The ASPA's request is they want them to delay requiring these forms to be attached until basically years ending after the year in which they finally become able to accept the forms electronically, 
which would say essentially that they weren't there at the end of 21. So 21 would be optional to attach these things. And then if they got it done by the end of this year, and it sounds like they would for two of the three categories by the end of the year, they're supposed to have it done. Then next year, we'd make it mandatory for partnerships and S-Corps. The AICPA would be assuming, which may not be a bad assumption at this point, that by then, most people be aware they're going to have to do it. And also by then, the software companies would be way more ready to handle this right now. As you probably notice right now, there are lots of issues with your software and getting this reported. Uh, now, now the issue du jour appears to be, from the emails I'm getting, people have discovered, wait, my partnership invested in a mutual fund. And a mutual fund just tells me total foreign dividends. They're not listing by country. Now, for an individual holding that, we know on the 1116 instructions, you're told you can just basically use RIC as a foreign country for all mutual funds. But you'll also discover that our tax software generally is not accepting RIC as a country, right? They're, they're following the strict, IRS, the strict IRS statement that's on the January 18th revision to the instructions that you can only use a country in the code on the webpage they list to, and RIC is not there. So even though the partners, if they're all individuals, could clearly use RIC as the code, it's allowed. And what I find amusing is on UltraTax, at least, there is the support in there for RIC for stuff coming through a partnership. But there is no way that we can tell openly to get the RIC entry onto the K2 right now that I've found for UltraTax, which I find amusing that they admit it could happen, but they have no way to produce a partnership return that would do that. And the same problems being reported to me by people using other tax software that, you know, they're not accepting RIC right now. Rather, you know, they're, they're requiring you to put in actual country codes, which even if you got them from the mutual fund would be an insanely long set of country codes for insanely small amounts. So, yeah, th this has been a problem. So as the AICPA noted, there says, look, there is confusion over who must file. All the way through February 18th, the IRS was still modifying the list of who could file under what conditions in what cases. And the IRS points out, I should say the ASCP points out, that there is a problem. It's not, you know, there is definite confusion on the FAQ that gave the most recent uh, amount of relief between whether or not indirect partners are impacted. Do they impact you if they require the information? And as the AICPA points out, some of the requirements in the law where you generally always have to look to indirect partners, but it appeared, in, at least for part of the guidance they gave on the February 18th relief, that they were only going to look at direct partners. So, yeah, totally unclear. So we don't know who has to file the form. People are confused about what goes on the pages. Some of our software can't take things on the pages. There's no obvious way to make it work. And the fact that they still lack the modernized e-file XML support, they're using the PDF workaround. And so the AICPA says, look, you guys aren't ready for this. Preparers aren't ready for this. Partnerships aren't ready for this. Let's just, everybody's aware now, let's go to January of 23. And at that point, everybody can be ready to file this. Will this do anything? Not so sure. You know, probably not the relief, or even if we get it, it'll be too late for those who are going to file on time. However, it may help us in terms of giving more information to the IRS about how inadequate their relief is that they had under notice 2021. Uh, I forgot the relief, the issue. 
right? The wonderful notice that the IRS put out, notice 2021-39, their relief for a reasonable cause, how that has major problems giving all the issues on here because it doesn't clearly cover those situations. Uh, generally, it covers situations where you're not able to get information from your partners. But what about I, I can't get the foreign tax information from my uh, mutual fund or I, you know, my, my tax software can't handle uh, mutual fund, you know, pass-throughs that just have foreign income in general. I mean, you know, all of those issues, I can't get the detail from the mutual fund. Yeah, all of those issues aren't really covered by that relief. And so the AICP is pushing for, you know, very simply, a kind of generic, we're going to give full relief, period. You know, and maybe full relief if there's not bad faith shown as opposed to Good relief only if you could show reasonable cause, good faith actions, and they have all these requirements to meet it. So we'll see where that goes. Hopefully we'll get something there, but it was interesting, shall we say. Finally, we have a tax court case here for a data entry error. Man, if you're going to make a data entry error, uh, I'll put it this way. This person really managed to make the big data entry error. Uh, basically uh, took this stuff up by a factor of 100. In this case, this is a case of Bush versus Commissioner. This is tax court docket number 14085-20S. This is a bench opinion. As such, it is, shall we, it does not have precedential value. Um, you know, it's just straight up a bench opinion issued by the court to resolve this. It was issued on the 25th of February. Now, this is a problem with a taxpayer who was deciding to do the tax return herself on a, what did they call it, you know, a popular set of software. We're not told for sure, but of course, you know, we're thinking this would mean probably TurboTax, maybe H&R Block or Tax Act. You know, I think those are the major ones out there. You know, they used one of those programs and the issue became the taxpayer were tr was trying to enter their home mortgage interest. Now, their home mortgage interest for the year on the Form 1098 was $21,201.25 in 2017. Unfortunately, they didn't realize that their tax software did not take the pennies. Now, I'm not sure what the issue became, whether the software either ignored the decimal point or just didn't allow it to you know, be there, or they just fouled up typing it in. But in any event, instead of $21,201.25 of mortgage interest, uh, she claimed on the return $2,120,125 of mortgage interest. Slightly more than she had and slightly more than her total income. Okay. So, okay, she makes this entry. Now, the tax return created by this would go for a full refund of all withholding because these guys had no taxable income, right? It was all gone. So, you know, therein lies your problem. Now, she was saying, the IRS, of course, noticed the problem. They had a 1098 that was not over $2 million of home mortgage interest. It would also be interesting how that would have fit under the caps, too. But, okay, even the million-dollar cap, that would have been one heck of an interest rate. You know, I, I would say that it, it would suggest you were borrowing from loan sharks uh, to do that. And even so, that, that's a lot of interest to have paid. So in any event, the IRS catches this. They then go back and assess the real tax. It was more than $5,000 of tax. That meant that the understatement of income 
was more than the amount that triggers the substantial understatement penalty. Under the substantial understatement penalty under 6662, you have an automatic 20% penalty because you made a mistake on the return that ended up with taxes due in excess of 5,000 or if greater, 10% or if you have a form 199A deduction of any sort on the return, 5% of the tax actually due. They don't tell us it was the 5,000 or the 10% that they went over, but let's just assume for right now, they probably went over the 5,000. So they were over the $5,000 they owed tax because they'd wiped out their entire withholding, right? They'd gotten every cent back. Now, eventually the taxpayers conceded that, yeah, the IRS's tax computation was right. And okay, yeah, we owe the interest because obviously we had the money. So we'll accept that. But they balked at the 20% penalty. They thought that it was unfair. Now, the taxpayers said that they should not be able to, you know, uh, they shouldn't be hit with the penalty. Uh, it was due to return preparation software feature limitation that resulted in an unnoticed error made by Mrs. Bush after the amount of mortgage interest entered the program, right? So because that was what caused the entire understatement, they said none, none of this, none of the penalties should apply to any of the tax. And so we should just be able to, you know, we'll pay the tax due, we'll pay the interest, we won't pay any penalty. The IRS said, no, no, no. This is a nature of an error that, no, the penalty applies. And the tax court agreed. The tax court made it very straightforward. They said, look, Yes, there are cases. If you inadvertently made an entry error, you swapped digits or something, that's an error, and it's conceivable that error could lead to a situation, you know, where there'd be reasonable cause to throw out a penalty. But they said, in this case, that doesn't seem reasonable. Given your return, the nature of the mistake should have been large enough that if you had done any review of the return of any sort, you would have immediately noticed that this thing just didn't make sense. Especially as you looked at Schedule A, which as the court points out, has the interest offset. So it's clear where it's over there and it's mortgage interest. It's not like following a bunch of odd lines on the form. It's standing out there by itself in the interest category. It's really the only interest thing you've got over there. And it would have been immediately clear to them, or should have been, as the court said, it sticks out like the proverbial sore thumb, that that was way more interest than you had paid. So had you reviewed the return, you would have noticed this. And the catch is, merely making the mistake didn't mean that was the end of your work you had to do to file a proper return. Every taxpayer has an obligation to review the final product. And had you, because again, our obligation for reasonable cause generally is uh, we, we took reason, we took actions for reasonable cause and good faith that, that we did what you'd expect a reasonable person to have done who was attempting to get the right amount of tax computed. What would they have done to help make sure they'd gotten the proper computation? And one of the things you would do is review the return before you finally signed it, because, you know, you would take care to see, does this make sense? You'd always think, yes, you might have made a data entry error and maybe I'll notice it. You know, what's up there? What's going on? Well, turns out 
one of the two even admitted that they really hadn't looked at the return at all before submitted. They just entered the data and said go. Apparently the other one didn't admit to that, but the other one also didn't say that they'd actually uh, looked it over. I don't know which one of the two admitted they hadn't looked at anything, which one of the two just wouldn't admit they hadn't, but you know, ne never really said whether that person had or had not looked at anything. But clearly, had either one of them looked at the return, it should have been obvious this was wildly different than in the past and that they were getting all their money back and that was not normal. That would be one thing should clue you in. And number two, that there was a huge number there for itemized deductions. And on Schedule A, there was an insanely large number there for mortgage interest. And all of that should have been noticed. The taxpayers didn't notice it. He said, well, that's just simply being reckless and negligent. And for that, you're still going to be penalized. Now, I should point out, we have seen this same position pushed by the courts when there was a preparer error, right, that the taxpayer should have noticed that. But at least in that scenario, the taxpayer probably has recourse against the preparer. Because if it's that blatant, if an error of this sort was made by a preparer, in theory, the preparer should have noticed the error, right? It's that blatant. Anybody looking at the return should have noticed the error. This also is a good reminder, though, for everybody. Don't just blindly throw numbers at the tax software and then accept the return that comes out without actually sitting down and doing a desk review of the return, just to make sure it makes sense, right? You might not catch everything. Yes, you could transpose numbers and be off by $90, maybe even $900, depending upon you know how big the return is and how big the numbers are and where the problem is. But you should catch if you're off by 90,000, 900,000, or a couple million. On most returns, you may, may, maybe not, you know, well, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I guess it's possible if you had somebody with a really, really high net income, you're doing Bill Gates' return, maybe you could be off by $2 million, maybe you have a $2 million data entry error, and it'd be immaterial in this case. Maybe for Warren Buffett, it'd be immaterial. But I think for most of our clients, even our higher net worth clients, a $2 million data entry error would probably stand out on the return as to why is that so much higher than what it was last year. You know, why is that, especially home mortgage interest? I mean, again, with the limitations on home mortgage interest, how in the world could you have a mortgage that would get that would be deductible with two plus million of interest? That just seems like that, that couldn't happen. That's not realistic. So keep that in mind. You can't just follow it. But I do say it is pretty good evidence here that obviously not all people are tax people, despite Intuit's belief of that for that thing. And obviously, at least these two were not tax people who ended up doing this. So just keep that in mind. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 28th, 2022. As always, we're going to be back next week looking at whatever happens in the coming week on federal taxes. See if we finally get a week without a K-2 development. Uh, well, maybe, maybe we'll get the relief. Then we'll talk about the relief next week. Who knows what the IRS might do, but it'd be nice to get on a different topic. I'd say at this point, I, I think we've kind of beat this to death. We'll also be monitoring, or I'll be monitoring the uh, Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, Washington, um, and Minnesota, and also checking in on the discussion group on Idaho's website. So we'll keep our eye there and you can post something there if you have something, you have a question or something. I'll kind of keep my eye on those and 
then, then I may post. If I think I can help, I'll try to post something there. Otherwise, again, we'll be back next week. We'll talk to you guys about whatever may be happening in federal taxes next week because it's always, something's always going on. And we'll discuss what happens. And hopefully, as we head to our first due date of the year, right, our first major due date, the March 15th on the pass-throughs, which is called all the K-2 fund, uh, we'll start getting ready for that and start discussing that next week as we start getting relatively close to that first date. And we're getting, at that point, we're actually getting, now you realize, like a month and a half away from the April 18th date, that may actually be the April 18th first unextended individual due date for the first time since 20, since we filed back in 2019 for the 2018 returns. So we have that thrill to look for. So look forward to seeing all you guys next week here on Current Federal Tax Developments.